Amen, and good morning to you. I invite you to uh, take up your Bibles and meet me. You can meet me in John chapter 1, where we'll be this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazrowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. Uh, and I am thankful that you've joined us today, whether it be in person or digitally, if you're watching uh, from home. And I would be even more thankful if you took the opportunity to introduce uh, yourself to me after service, if we haven't met. Uh, we love new people here, and I want to do whatever I can to help you feel connected. Uh, and so if we haven't had that opportunity, uh, please, after service, just make yourself known, uh, and I'd love to meet you. Uh, before we begin our time today in God's Word, let's go ahead and turn to God in prayer together. Dear Father, we, uh, as we come into this Christmas season, I pray that you would give us a sense of awe and wonder that befits the birth of a king. Would we not be callous to uh, this story? And would we be receptive to Jesus? Would your Holy Spirit illuminate us this morning and give us understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do and why he came to do it? In Jesus' glorious name we pray these things. Amen. Uh, last weekend, my family, uh, we took our annual visit to Port Farms to uh, get our Christmas tree and uh, where we always get it from. And um, when we arrived home, we set it up on the stand and we decorated it with all of its lights and all of its ornaments. And I've got four kids, two of them very young at home. And so all of our ornaments we've actually put at the top of the tree. It looks very funky uh, because the bottom half, there's no ornaments, but the top half are, are where all of them are because our two-year-old will come and just pull them off and uh, spike them on the ground uh, like a touchdown. And, and then there's glass and all kinds of ornament parts everywhere. Uh, but this is one of our, my favorite things to do during the Christmas season is set up the Christmas tree and the lights and the ornaments. And it's a tradition of ours to uh, actually go to Chipotle on the way home for lunch uh, and eat a burrito. And then we set it up. And then it's a tradition of ours to watch Christmas movies and drink hot chocolate and uh, do all of these things. And even this past weekend, we made Christmas cookies and uh, we, we, we really lean into these traditions and we enjoy it uh, every year. Um, as a culture, I think that this time of year, we crave that kind of um, the sentimental value of traditions, right? Or, or the normalcy that comes with tradition. There, there's something so good and restful and soothing and comforting, uh, just doing that thing the way that we always do it, whatever it is. But we love to participate in that annual festivity because it brings comfort. Because I've always done that. And I don't really care to divert from that or the comfort that it brings. This year, for obvious reasons, we're forced perhaps to modify our traditions. We're, uh, we've been forced to celebrate Christmas a little differently given the ramifications of a pandemic. We cannot easily um, continue our normal routines or continue our normal traditions. Uh, perhaps they've been challenged. I felt that last week when we went to Port Farms because every, every year they have activities in the barn for the kids and this year they didn't have it. And I just felt sad. I felt sad for my kids that we couldn't do this thing that we do every year. Uh, so I get that feeling. I understand, you know, how you might be feeling in this moment, but I want us to consider 
the benefit from breaking off perhaps from the norm. There's been talk in the pandemic lately about what they call pandemic fatigue. And have you heard this phrase, pandemic fatigue? It's, it's this idea that we have just been bombarded and we have, we have heard so much about the pandemic really since January, February, um, that we're just kind of sick of it. We're just kind of over it. I don't really care to hear anything else about the pandemic. I don't care to hear about the updated guidelines. I don't really care to hear. Even the numbers have kind of grown dull on us of the, of the rising cases. And we've heard so much of it over and over again that we're just kind of turned off and calloused to the whole thing, right? In the same way, I believe that as believers, especially those of us who have grown up in the church, I believe that there's such thing as Christmas fatigue, believe it or not. I believe that as we do the same stuff over and over again, and as we sing the same songs over and over again, and as we hear the same story over and over again, uh, the Christmas story can just kind of grow mundane on us. Where you look at it and you say, I've heard that a million times. I've been there and I've, I've done that, right? And I fear that many of us, as we've heard the story over and over again, now take it for granted. We've experienced it and read it and heard it so much that perhaps the thrill of it is lost on us. And, and, and this, isn't, this is not because it's not the most thrilling story in all of the universe, because it really is, but because in our own um, sinfulness, perhaps, in our own comfort, uh, we just kind of grow content in our callousness. And so this is why I've actually had us turn to John chapter 1 during this Christmas season. I mentioned that we were going to be here last week, and perhaps you went home and, and did your homework, and, and you sat down, and you read John chapter 1, and you thought to yourself, now wait a minute, this isn't a Christmas story, because where is Mary? And where is Joseph? And where are the angels singing to the shepherds out in the field? Give me that. I want that. It's a tradition. I want the normalcy. I crave that. Give me the stinky donkeys. Right? Give me the, the seven pound, 10 ounce baby Jesus lying so cute in a manger. Right? That's what I want. And you're right. None of those images will appear here in John chapter one. But I would make the argument that this is a Christmas story. This is the Christmas story according to the Apostle John. He just tells it a little bit differently. And most importantly, what John shows us is that the Christmas story begins long before a baby in a manger. I know around Christmas time, we have this desire to spend time in the nativity story, but it's imperative for us to know that the story of Jesus did not start in the nativity. And it's my hope that during this season, as we look at the first 18 verses of John chapter one, that we will see Jesus bigger than we ever have before in the past. That we will be enamored with the wonder of Jesus. That we would gaze at Jesus in awe. In my little and limited mind, this is the question I'm asking myself this Christmas season. I'm asking myself, how can I see more 
of the grandeur and splendor of Jesus than I did yesterday? How how can I see how much bigger Jesus is more than I ever have before? I, I know that my God is far bigger than I can imagine. And so instead of just sitting here saying, yeah, been there, done that, I've heard that story, I would much rather this season gaze at King Jesus and see how magnificent he really is. And maybe, just maybe as a result, you will never see the nativity scene the same again. And it will mean more than it ever has before in your mind. John helps us in this first chapter see the majesty of Jesus in the flesh. And I'd like to read the first five verses. Let's go ahead and take a look at it together. This is where we're going to spend our time this morning, and you can follow along as I read. It says this, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Once again, we'll tackle just these first five verses today that are just loaded uh, with theology Um, but we will get to the 18 verses eventually this season. And these 18 verses that we will look at have come to be known as John's prologue, right? The beginning uh, of his gospel account, of his account of Jesus's ministry. And this prologue really shows us the perspective from which we should understand John's gospel as a whole. If you were to go and read the rest of John's gospel, it should be understand under the framework of these first 18 verses. And with skill and intricacy, and as one commentator says, delicacy, John, almost poetically, has done what so many composers have done when they compose music for stage performances. If you go to a musical, At the very beginning of the performance, before any actor or actress even gets up on the stage, you will see the composer uh, take his platform and he will take command of of his baton. And and so in such a fluid way, he, he will guide his musicians in the orchestra pit into what's called an overture. An overture, it's the piece of music that's really designed to give you a foretaste of what's to come throughout the rest of the performance. And if you listen carefully, you will hear the themes and you will experience the patterns of the notes that you will enjoy later on in the performance. In the same way, John, here in his prologue, gives an overture for the rest of the story about Jesus. In these first 18 verses, what we're going to look at over the course of the next three weeks, John tells us who Jesus is. And John tells us what Jesus did. And John tells us what he can do in our lives if we just simply let him in. The first five verses that we just read um, describe that first category. In such simplicity, it describes who Jesus is. 
what we're, what we're really looking at this morning is the nature of Jesus, right? Was he simply just a baby in a manger? Is that it? Was, was he just a really good man, a well-respected man in the community that had a mass of followers whom he influenced? Was he just a good teacher? Did he have wise things to say? Or is there more to the story? John says, yes, there is. He is all of those things, correct. But oh, is he so much more. And he writes his first five verses. Let's take a look at it together. And there's no better place to start than in the beginning of the passage uh, where we actually find those very words. In the beginning. In the beginning was the word. Now, this is an obvious callback to Genesis 1.1, right? The opening verse of the Bible where we would read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is alluding to creation. He's, he's alluding to a God who creates and a God who gives life. And in such a masterful way, John places his narrative, his story about Jesus on the same page as the creation account. Almost to say, hey, do you remember? Do you remember how God created the heavens and the earth? Remember in the beginning when God created life? Well, guess what? God's about to do it again. He's about to create new life. You see, if Genesis 1 tells the story of the old creation, John 1 tells the story of the new creation, of new life. And in both the original creation and the new creation account that John is going to tell throughout his gospel, the, the creative agent, the means by which God creates is his word. It's his word. John, here in chapter one, says, in the beginning was the word. Or you might be familiar with the original Greek, which is logos. Logos. In the beginning was the logos. Why would John use this word to describe uh, this person? Words are important, right? They, They convey meaning. They convey thought. They are expressions of what's going on in someone's mind. They help us gain understanding of of who somebody is and what they're thinking and what they're expressing. They also have influence and they, they have power. Nations have risen and fallen because of words. In James chapter three, if you were to go there, he talks about the tongue, right? Being, being like a small fire that can set the whole forest ablaze. That's the type of power our words have. This is what the original Hebrew reader would think when they read that word, logos. They would consider the word of God to be God in motion, God in action. God's word represented his his creative workings in the world. When God spoke, things happened. We should remember this from from the original creation account, right? God said, let there be light. And boom, there was light. 
God said this, and then this happened. He spoke all creation into being and gave it order through his word. And furthermore, if if you were to keep reading through the Old Testament, you actually see God's word personified. And this is what I mean by that. God's word was actually given, uh, it would take on personal attributes. For instance, there's so many times in the prophets of old that, that we read that the, it wasn't that God spoke to the prophets. It was the word of the Lord came to Abram. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The picture that we get is as if the word of the Lord was an actual messenger that was sent by God to the prophets. Psalm 107 verse 20 does this. It personifies God's word. It says that God sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. God didn't just speak, but he sent his word. John is following suit here in verse 1 and personifying God's word. He's communicating that the word is actually a character in the story. And John tells us that this character, let's call him the word for now, was in the beginning. Meaning that in the beginning, there was already somebody there. And according to John, it was the word. Basically, if we could somehow take a page from uh, Doc Brown and Marty McFly and jump into the DeLorean that's a time machine and set that thing to the beginning of time itself, if we, if we could take that time machine all the way back as far as it could physically go, right at the beginning of time itself, you would step out of the DeLorean and to your surprise, you would have a welcoming party because there was somebody already there. The word would greet you in the beginning. The word who was in the beginning, meaning that he wasn't created. He was in there already. He was already there. And we know that this is the case because verse three goes on to explain that all things were made through him and we'll get there. Uh, But this, this word has taken on attributes and it was in the beginning. And our mind is boggled by such an idea, by such a thing, and we can hardly understand it because what John is telling us is that when material things came into existence, there was already something there in existence, this word. And who is the word? Who is this character? Who is this story that John is telling us about? Well, if you let your eyes wander down to verse 17, John tells us that this word is Jesus. Jesus is the Logos. The Logos is really a title that is given to Jesus. And so what is John saying here? He's saying, in the beginning was Jesus. He was already there. When did Jesus begin? That's what many of your children might ask you as they're younger. When did, when, when did Jesus begin? And our only appropriate response is, he didn't. He's, he's just always been there. That's what the first part of this verse is, is telling us, is that Jesus is eternal. Right, right? If you truly want to understand the Christmas story, 
you're going to need to look long before the major the manger is ever seen. You, you need to begin before the manger. I would say you need to begin even before the beginning. You need to begin before the beginning of time and space to truly understand the, the Christmas story, right? Jesus is the word. He's the eternal word. Yes, he is the expression of God. He is the personification of God in action, in motion. He is the messenger uh, uh, from God from before time began. But once more, he is also so much more than that. And John wants us to be very clear in our understanding of who Jesus is. John wants us to know the full nature of Jesus, that Jesus is not just eternal, And not just some messenger. No, John continues in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and don't miss this. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so here's the logic to this original reader, right? If you're sitting here in the first century reading this gospel, you you heard about Jesus, or you saw him in the flesh, he makes this big hoopla, uh, but, but perhaps you're Jewish and you've heard about the one monotheistic God, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You've heard that in your entire life and you're trying to reconcile it and you're saying, wait a minute, how does Jesus and God, what is the relationship between the two? Right, right, because I've worshiped God all my life, but now here comes Jesus and he's teaching some very strange things. How can I reconcile the two? What is their relationship? And what John shows us here is that there is indeed a distinction between God or what we will come to know later in John as God the Father and Jesus, who is God the Son, right? right? They are separate entities. They are distinct separate persons. The word was with God. They're hanging out together, but there is a difference between the two, between God the Father and God the Son. But the word was God. The all-encompassing God was was the word. And so this means that, that they are the same in essence. Their nature is the same. Their being is the same. John introduces us in the beginning of what we would call uh, Trinitarian thought, right? The the idea that um, the scriptural biblical idea that there is one God, we, we are monotheistic, one God that exists simultaneously as three persons, Now, John is only talking about two of the persons here, but he will introduce us to the third person of the Trinity later on in his gospel, the the Holy Spirit. But it's this idea of the Trinity, and and it's so mind-boggling for us to wrap our head around, and there's no really good illustration um, that that hits this well. I haven't come across, I don't think most scholars have not come across an illustration uh, that is not at least a little bit heretical. Right? If, if, if you go on and on thinking about it, and the more I talk about it, the more chance I'm going to become heretical if I'm not careful. God is one. He exists as three persons. Jesus, the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit, they are not interchangeable. It's not as if God takes on a different form. That at one point he was God the Father, and then at the at the at the birth, Jesus uh, comes into the world. God became the Son, and now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, he becomes the Holy Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
No, the Bible teaches that God is one and he exists as three different persons. And this is what John is trying to tell us. He is saying that Jesus is separate and different from God the Father. God the Father and the Son aren't merely interchangeable, but Jesus is still, in fact, God himself. If we were to translate this uh, first verse word for word from the Greek, um, the order is actually reversed. It actually says that God was what the word was. Basically, uh, to, to say that whatever we say about God, we must also say about the word, Jesus. And whatever we can say about Jesus, we must also say about God. And to go even further, this means that we must also say that the very words and the very workings of Jesus are the words and the workings of God himself. But they are distinct persons from each other, God the Father and God the Son. Now, there's something worth mentioning as a side note here with this verse. Uh, Because someday you may have a couple of people come and knock on your door. And, and you'll open the door, right? Because you're friendly and, and you want to make friends. Yeah. Um, and they will try and tell you who Jesus is. And they will try and tell you the nature of Jesus. And if you were to ask them to open up their translation of their Bible, it's deceptively close. Uh, you say, hey, open up to John 1, 1. And their verse would say, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Good. We're tracking so far. And the word was a God. This is what their Bibles will say. And they will claim that because Jesus was not God, that he was a God, that he is not to be identified with the almighty God, that instead he is a created being by the almighty God. Now, I don't mean to poke fun, but if this is something that you're struggling with to understand, or if this is something um, that perhaps you have relatives that are, that are uh, consumed by this kind of theology, I would be happy to walk through this with you very specifically on an individual basis. But for our purposes this morning, I promise you that their translation is false. The original words does not say that the word was a God. It definitively says that the word was God. The vast majority of Greek scholars, Greek language scholars, who are far more intelligent than I am, uh, claim that this translation is correct. Even secular ones, they may not believe it, but they will look at the original text and say, that says that the word was God. And this is further supported as we continue on in the next verse, in verse 3. Look at at it. John writes that all things were made through him, being Jesus, and without him was not anything or not one thing uh, was made that was made. This shows us more of Jesus' nature, that he is the creator of all things. But but more than just our understanding of him as creator, as life-giver, the logic of this verse actually speaks to his preexistent, eternal nature. John includes this verse to prove his point from verse 1 and 2. Let me show you how this logic plays out uh, in, in a diagram, right? 
This diagram, I actually uh, got it from a guy named Greg Kokel, who's the founder of an organization called Stand to Reason. Um, Kokel explains that verse 3 here encompasses everything that exists, right? This box, if you will, represents all things that exist. Um, But the verse uh, does make a distinction. It puts everything that exists into two different categories, hence the two boxes in the diagram. The first category is all things that exist that never came into being. In other words, what I mean by that is that these are things, are things that exist that were not created. Now, you could ask your friends at the door, um, what belongs in this category? And they would rightly say, God. God exists, but he never came into being. He was never created. He is eternal. Now, the second category in the other box is all things that exist that did come into being. In other words, these are things that exist that were created. Really, what this box represents is all created things. And according to verse 3, everything in this second box was created through Jesus. The verse says it right there. Not one thing that was created was not created through Jesus. Now, something to understand about these categories. These are all encompassing categories, meaning that everything that exists was either created or it wasn't created. There is no third option. We also know that these categories are mutually exclusive, meaning that you cannot be in both categories. You have to be in one or the other. Something that exists cannot be both created and not created. It has to be one or the other. And so here's the real kicker. Which category does Jesus belong in, according to John? He exists, so he must fit in one of the two. He can't be in both. Your friends at the door will try and put him in the second category of things that came into being. But that verse says that not one thing was created apart from Jesus. Not one thing came into existence without Jesus. Greg Kokel says that everything that came into being owes its existence to Jesus, who caused it all to happen. If Jesus caused all created things to come into existence, then he must have existed before all created things came into existence. It's just simple logic. It's a very, it's a very silly quote, but According to verse 3, Jesus has to fit in the first category on the same page with God. And so, yes, verse 3 speaks to his creative power. But John is ultimately drawing our attention back to the fact that he is eternal, that he has an eternal nature, which allows for the good news of verse 4. What John has shared with us sets us up for verse four. Take a look at it. John writes, in him was life and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This word, 
this Logos, this man, Jesus, that baby that we celebrate in the manger this time of year, who is eternal and who is God, yet his own person, who is creator of all things, is the light of all humankind. What Jesus brings to the table is life. And this life proves to be the light for all of us. The life that Jesus brings is illuminating to us. That Jesus spiritually illuminates us to understand the world as it was created to be. He illuminates the darkness of our sin. He illuminates the darkness of our unbelief. And here's the wonderful news for us. That while the light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. It it doesn't say that the darkness did not overcome it. The darkness has not. Ultimately, presently, it still has not overcome it, even 2,000 years after Jesus came. When Jesus came to earth as that baby in a manger, there was a clash between light and darkness, and light prevailed. This is true of physical light, right? Light and darkness are physically opposite. We understand that. But while they are opposite, they are not equal. They are not equal in power. Light is stronger than darkness. Darkness cannot occupy the same space as light. Even in a a room as large as this one, if we were to turn out all the lights, and cover all the windows and get this place as pitch black as we possibly could, I could light a match, the tiniest of flames, and every single one of you would be able to see it. In the vast, uh, the vastness of darkness, light prevails. And this is so important for us. Why? Because we are in the darkness in our original state. Darkness in our sinful nature has overcome us. It hasn't overcome the light of Jesus, but it has overcome us. And we need to recognize the dangers of living in darkness, of walking in such darkness. As a child, my parents let me go wander off in the neighborhood to play with my friends wherever we would please, but they always had one rule. Michael, make sure you are home before dark. You can go out and play, but be home before the sun comes down. Why would they have such a rule? Because they knew the dangers of darkness. They knew that their child was at risk when the sun went down. Darkness overtakes us spiritually and there is a danger there. But everyone who clings to the light of Jesus, who grabs a hold of that light, will have life. Despite all the hostility and the nastiness and the danger and even the death of darkness, it cannot overcome the light and it cannot overcome all of those who walk in the light of Jesus. And Jesus 
is the only one capable of overcoming the darkness. This is, as I mentioned before, what our entire passage has set up. Do you know why the darkness couldn't overcome the light? It's because of who Jesus is. It's because of his nature. Jesus is the only one who can overcome the darkness by his own power because he is eternal and because he is fully God. Since Jesus is eternal, since he existed before he was a baby in a manger, this means that Jesus was outside, believe it or not, of time and space. He existed outside of created order. And this is so important to understand because of our universal problem. Our universal problem is that we live in a fallen world. The world is broken. And everyone, no matter what your background, will agree that something is wrong with the world. Things aren't as they should be. And every religion and every philosophy and every worldview tries to solve this universal problem that something is wrong. They try and reconcile it to the best of their ability. They're trying to, to make sense of a fallen, broken world. They might not say this, but what they're really looking for is a savior. But herein lies the problem. Any sort of so-called savior that originates within the, the limitations of time and space, within the limitations of a broken and fallen world, that such savior is still under the same darkness. It's impossible for them to save you because they're in the same predicament as you. Right? It's impossible for, for them to save us because they're just as much in trouble. This past week, I read the, uh, on the news a story of a 62-year-old man by the name of Stuart B. A week ago on Friday, Stuart B. took his boat out off the coast of Florida to do some stargazing, and he only intended to be out there for a couple hours. But he made a very terrible mistake and that he fell asleep on his boat. And I don't know how much time elapsed, but Stuart B. woke up unfortunately, in danger when his boat began taking in massive amounts of water to the point that the boat actually capsized. Now, to his fortune, it didn't completely sink. There was enough air within uh, the boat somehow that, that the capsized boat stayed afloat and, and Stuart was able to hang on for life uh, to that bow. And he knew of the danger that he was in. He, he said in interviews after the fact that he thought this was it. He's saying, I, I'm in darkness. I, this is going down. I'm done for. My time is up. And although Stuart B. was alone, I guarantee you that if somebody was literally in the boat with him, if somebody was clinging to that capsized boat as well, there was nothing that they would be able to do to save them because they were in the same very predicament. A drowning person can't save another drowning person. No, what they needed was someone who is not drowning, someone who comes from the outside, someone who comes from the safe place with all the necessary resources and pulls them out. And this is exactly what happened to Stuart B. For two days, Stuart B. clung to the bow of his ship, 
uh, for his life. And then on Sunday morning, he was spotted by crew members of a commercial container ship that was sailing to Delaware. And from their place of safety, they had all the resources they needed to scoop him out of the water and save him from looming death. What John is saying in chapter one is that the one who is eternal, the one who is outside our fallen world, who is not drowning has come. And because he is God, he is the only one powerful enough to save. He has all the resources necessary to save us. At the end of John's gospel, he shares what what we call his purpose verse. It's John 20, verse 31. And John writes that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote his entire book, not so that you would be convinced that Jesus was a good man, not so you would be convinced that he was some kind of miracle worker, not so that you would just be enamored with his little baby in a manger. No, so that you would believe that Jesus is indeed the eternal son of God and in him you would find life. Last Sunday morning, that container vessel stumbled across Stuart B grasping onto his capsized boat. And it would have been absolutely absurd if Stuart B looked upon his rescuers and said, no thanks. I think I'll wait for the next savior. I think I'll wait for someone else to come by. This Sunday, as we have gazed upon Jesus, not as a baby in the manger, but the living, eternal Son of God, He is your rescuer, and He calls to you. And it would be absolutely absurd if you heard His call and said, No thanks. I'll wait for another Savior to come by. I assure you that apart from Jesus, there is no other Savior coming. He's it. And so if you hear his voice today, would you turn to him? Or would you grasp onto him for your salvation? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the confidence that is your word. And we can have confidence in your word because we know it comes from you. And we know that your living word incarnate is Jesus. And we can have confidence in Jesus because he is the living son of God. And so, Father, would we just be in awe of who he is and what he came to do? Lord, forgive us for, for, for how we have treated this story. I would ask that even in this moment, the thrill of it would not be lost on us. And I pray, Father, that if there is anybody here in this room today, that you would call them and they would respond to your voice by turning to Jesus in this moment, asking you to forgive them of their darkness and then cling to the light. 
We thank you, Father, for all that you have done for us. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.